Good morning, and thank you for joining the worship service at Palmetto Baptist Church in Powdersville, South Carolina. Well, I'd like to ask you to take your Bible this morning to the text that we read together briefly just a moment ago in Matthew chapter 2. And as we turn there during the Advent season, one of the things that all of us enjoy, I think, is we get to sing hymns and songs about the birth of the Lord that we normally don't sing throughout the rest of of the year. And uh, I don't know why we don't sing them the rest of the year, but we typically bring them out and uh, four or five weeks before uh, the Sunday that or the week that we observe the Lord's birth and maybe for a week or two after we sing these hymns together. And you know them as Christmas carols. And most of the Christmas carols that we sing come right out of the gospel story of the birth of the Lord that's taught either in the book of Matthew or in the book of Luke. And so I put together a little list of Christmas carols that, uh, and, and I want you to think about this. Think about the, the, the Christmas carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And that comes right out of Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. The, the hymn, Silent Night. I'm not sure it was silent, but it was night. Silent Night comes out of Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And that same text gives us, O Holy Night, and uh, so I know many of you uh, know that hymn. Angels We Have Heard on High comes out of Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, just like Hark the Herald Angels comes right out of that same text. Joy to the World comes out of Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 gives us the, the hymn, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, Away in a Manger uh, comes out of Luke chapter 2, verse 7. And O Little Town of Bethlehem comes right out of the text that we're looking at this morning, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, what you may not know about all of those carols that I just mentioned, none of them were written in America. It wasn't until many years later in 1857 that the first Christmas carol ever written in America came to be, and it happened to be written written by a seminary professor who had been asked to direct a Christmas pageant for his seminary. And so as he was putting this pageant together, he needed a song that would go with a part of the pageant he was working on. And so he wrote the hymn, he wrote the carol that I'm about to mention. And it has been, I think, a law of the Medes and Persians that if you ever have a Christmas pageant in a church or a school, it is a law that this Christmas carol has to be part of that production. In fact, many of you here, how many of you, let's just take a little survey, how many of you in your younger years were coerced, bribed, or forced by your mom or your dad to have a part in the Christmas play that your church was putting on or your school was putting on. Can I see your hands? I see that testimony to pain and anguish being (laughs) lifted up before the Lord. So you know exactly what's coming. The hymn or the carol is We Three Kings of Orient are. Remember that? You remember that? How could we forget that? And some of you dressed up in your dad's bathrobe or in some other uh, long flowing garment that came out of your mom's closet, and uh, you put on your head some kind of a cardboard 
crown that you uh, made or that your mom artfully made for you, and you marched on stage at the right time, bearing your gifts to the uh, manger where the little infant Jesus was, and you joined the shepherds and the sheep and the stray camel that made its way there, whatever else happened to be, depending on the nature of the production. And so this Christmas carol has made its way into our psyche and into our thinking. And I hate to disabuse us of a hymn that has such a story tradition in our lives, but do you realize that there's a lot of theological issues that got obscured when Mr. Hopkins wrote that hymn for his Christmas pageant? For example, they weren't kings. That immediately destroyed a whole bunch of Christmas cards you sent out this year. And so hopefully you won't do that again next year. They weren't kings. And secondly, there's no indication in the text that there were only three of them. In fact, there is good indication that there were a lot more than three that came together into the city of Jerusalem. And so I want us this morning to look at the Christmas pageant that Matthew describes in the first two chapters. And as Matthew unfolds the birth of Christ, if he were writing it as a Christmas pageant, there would be five parts to it. The first part is in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. I'll give you them very quickly so you can at least sort of locate chapter 2 in the big play that or pageant that Matthew is giving us. In Act 1, or part 1 of that pageant, is in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 1, where Matthew predicts this amazing birth as a royal birth, a covenant birth. It is a messianic birth. And he's going to take you through generations of the lineage of the baby that is about to be born to help you understand that he comes from the right line. He's going to be born at the right time, and he's going to be born at the right place. And so that's act number one. Act number two, verses 18 through the end of chapter two, focus our attention on the miraculous means of this birth, its theological significance, and its divine intention. He, this infant, this Emmanuel, is God with us. And he will save his people from their sins. And we looked at that a week or so ago. The third act in Matthew's drama is what we're looking at this morning. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Matthew points us to the royal overtones and the global reach of the rule of the one who is the rightful king of Israel by birth and not by political appointment or human strength or crafty scheming. Act 4 is the next part of chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. And they reveal, Matthew reveals, that this born king of Israel will become the representative for the entire nation of Israel. He will become the new Israel. And he will render obedience to God and fulfill the mission that God gave Israel to the nations. It's a stunning thing that Matthew does in Act 4. And then in Act 5, Matthew culminates this pageant. He ends the pageant in verses 19 through 23 of chapter 2 by presenting Jesus the Messiah 
as the new Moses, who will lead his people on a new exodus into a new kingdom that God the Father is establishing for him. This is a stunning portrait and a beautiful pageant that Matthew is presenting. And we're going to drop in on the third part, the middle part of that pageant in, in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2 that point to the royal overtones and the global reach of Messiah's rule. Now, let's let Matthew kind of set the stage for us and guide us through what we're doing as we meet the Magi here in our text. And the first thing that Matthew does when this part of the play comes online and the curtain rises is he introduces us to a surprising location. It's, it's not what we expected, and you can see it right away in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born, and then we're told exactly where he was born, in Bethlehem. Now, you and I, for thousands of years, have been in a tradition that, that knows where the birth of Jesus was. We have all our life heard about Bethlehem. We know a lot about Bethlehem. We know, for example, and, and we're well aware that it was the city of Ruth where she came and met Boaz. We know, for example, that uh, it was the place where Jesse lived and later where David was born. And so we know a lot about Bethlehem. But if you lived in the first century and somebody said the word Bethlehem to you, you might not even know where it was. It was a little tiny village, maybe five miles from the major hub of life in Israel, and that would be Jerusalem. It was about an hour's walk. Many of you have been on trips to Israel, and you have made your way to modern Bethlehem, and even modern Bethlehem is tiny and difficult to get to. And so if you lived in the first century, nobody had Bethlehem on their mind. But Matthew is trying to show you a problem that God has to resolve. And the problem is this. The prophets all predicted that the birth of Messiah would happen in the town of Bethlehem. And the problem is that Joseph and Mary are way up in Nazareth. When we ended chapter 1, when Act 2 in Matthew's drama closed, it closed on Joseph taking Mary to be his wife, just like the angel said, after he had been working hard to resolve a problem that had upturned his world. But we left him in Nazareth, and the issue is how are we going to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem all the way on the other side of the country. And unbeknownst to us, there's another group of people who have to get all the way to Bethlehem, and they live a long way away, a whole lot further away than Joseph and Mary lived. They didn't live in Nazareth. They lived all the way in Persia and particularly in the region of Babylon. And there's a group of men that have to get from Babylon all the way to Bethlehem. And so how in the world is God going to resolve 
this dilemma. And I would suggest to you that as Matthew introduces the location of this birth, he wants you to think about the fact that God is going to move everything on earth and everything in heaven to get everybody exactly where they need to be when they need to be there for this monumental moment in history. To get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, God moved amazingly on the earth. In fact, he moved in the heart of the most powerful man on the planet at that time. His name was Caesar Augustus. And you'll remember in Luke chapter 2, which is not part of our text this morning, that Luke tells us that it came into the mind of the most powerful man on the planet, the emperor of the Roman Empire, that the entire world should be taxed. And as that idea began to foment in his mind, he began to act on that idea, and eventually a decree went out that the whole world had to be taxed, and the way it worked was that you had to go and be registered in the particular city of your house. And we've already discovered in Matthew chapter 1 that Joseph was of the house of David. And that's why in Luke chapter 2, after God moved all the way in the heart of the emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus, that decree went out and it had earth-shaking effects for a young couple in the tiny village of Nazareth. And they made their way, Mary in the fullness of her pregnancy, all the way down to David's city. And David's city was not Jerusalem where he ruled. David's city was Bethlehem. Isn't it stunning how God worked? And how God moved. God didn't just move on the earth. God moved in the heavens. In verse 2 of our text, wise men came from the east saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And the reason we're asking this, the reason we're here is because we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Matthew records the arrival of a group of men, magi, who traveled from the east. And what prompted their difficult and dangerous journey and lengthy journey was the sudden appearance of a star and the constellations over the heavens where they were located. Now, we don't really know what this star was. And there is a whole lot that has been written about the star. In fact, there's as much written about the star as there is about anything else in the text. And I don't want you to get lost in the star. Some people believe it was a brand new star. Some people think it was a comet. Some people think it was an unusual planetary alignment. Some believe it was an angel. And some believe that it was a particular manifestation of the Shekinah glory of God, just like it appeared in Exodus to lead the people of God as a pillar of fire. We don't know exactly what it was, but we do know three things about this star. Here they are. In the world of these magi, the appearance of a star like this was always associated with the birth of an important world ruler. The second thing we know is that the star moved in very unusual ways that were not normal or typical for, for planetary heavenly objects. And number three, the appearance and the movement and the function of this star were supernaturally orchestrated by God. In other words, 
this star was no ordinary star. It had an extraordinary function, and its function was to bring these magi from where they were to Bethlehem while Caesar Augustus and his decree were designed to bring Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Isn't it stunning that the God of heaven works things on earth and things in heaven to get everybody to the right place at the right time. And I would just suggest to you that the same God who worked this in Luke 2 and in Matthew 2 is at work in your life. And he's at work in my life. God is not remiss in getting us to the exact place we need to be at the exact time we need to be there, and he's going to use divine providence to get us there. You're not here this morning by accident. You're not where you are in your stage in life by accident. When I, when I meet people, I'll often say to them, well, where are you from? And they'll say, well, I'm from here. And, the, and the, my next question is, well, what brought you here? And I will often get a whole list of things that happened. Well, this went on, and it had this effect, and we decided to do this. And then we knew somebody, and here we ended up. And I'm thinking, the God of heaven has been at work. The God of heaven has been at work. And that's exactly how Matthew begins this third act in his drama. Now, what has God been at work doing? And that's the second thing that Matthew wants us to notice, and he he kind of phrases it in the form of a troubling revelation. When these magi show up, now, by the way, nobody noticed when Jesus and Mary showed up. Here's a humble couple from the north part of the land, and they came on a very humble beast of burden with very few possessions. You could tell they'd been on a long trip. Mary was heavy with child. There was nothing special to the outward eye when you looked at this couple. But when the Magi showed up, and they would not have traveled with just one or two, they would have traveled with a huge litany of people, a large sort of of group that came into the city of Bethlehem, their arrival would have been noted. And when they started asking their questions, their arrival not only would have been noted, it would have made its way to Herod. Wise men came from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Last May, Beth and I had the privilege of being over in Israel leading a a study tour, and our guide took us to all the places uh, that Herod built. Herod is one of the most uh, incredible figures in the history of the ancient world. Uh, He's one of the few people that if you just put his name into a search engine, you're going to come immediately to the right person, Herod the Great. And our guide kept saying, Herod the Great is the greatest story never told. And uh, I'm not sure that that's the case, but Herod had a storied history. He was born in AD, or sorry, in BC 72, and he had been appointed by Rome to be the king over these regions, the region of Israel. He was not the legitimate 
uh, king. He did not have a Davidic lineage. He didn't have a birthright to that throne. But when, when Rome's in charge and they say Herod is the king, then Herod's the king. And that's why three times in the text, Matthew wants you to realize that we're dealing with a man who's the king. It didn't matter what you thought as an Israelite. It didn't matter if you questioned his lineage or you questioned his Jew, uh, Jewishness or you questioned anything else about him. He was the client king of Rome. And one thing about Herod was, was this. He had been on that throne for almost 35 years. And at the end of his life, he dies in 4 B.C., and the one thing that Herod cares more about than anything else is that throne. Nobody is going to take that throne. And it doesn't matter who you are. If I think you're going to touch the throne, you're done. And so he executes one of his favored wives. He executes two of his sons because he thinks they might have an eye for the throne. So you can imagine what happens when these incredibly decked out magi show up and they're asking about a king, a born king, a king who actually has Davidic rights to sit on that throne. You can imagine how this troubled Herod. In fact, the word troubled is a very strong word. It's the idea of deep anxiety, uh, deep alarm. Herod is absolutely beside himself. Because he knew that the game was up. It's interesting that Herod doesn't ask any questions about the identity of this child. He doesn't ask any questions about the timing of his birth other than wanting to know when the star appeared. He is really concerned about the location of the birth. And he doesn't address the wise men when he questions them uh, or the, the priests and the scribes. He doesn't ask them, where is the born king of Israel to be born? He literally says, where is Messiah to be born? He suspected, I believe, that this infant was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. And he knew one thing, that when Israel's Messiah showed up, he was going to sit on David's throne which meant he was going to touch the thing that mattered most to Herod. You know, when Jesus shows up in your life, he's going to touch the thing that matters most to you. He's going to touch the thing that matters most to me. There are things that matter so much to us that our eye is always on them. Our ear is always open. Our, our thinking is always about how to protect that thing. Maybe it's a plan that we have. Maybe it's something we intend to do for the Lord. And somebody comes along and says, I don't know if you should do that. All of a sudden, our, our, our hackles go up because that's what we're going to do. It can even sound very spiritual like that. And Herod had his eye on the throne, and here was the Messiah, potentially who had been born. And Herod knew that the minute this Messiah showed up, it was going to touch the thing that mattered most to us. Herod had no problem with other infants, maybe even other infants who had been born in the land, who had some tie to David. But this child was a problem. And maybe... That's how many of us feel 
about Jesus today. We're fine with a religious leader. We're great with a good teacher, with a doer of miracles and good deeds. But as soon as Jesus shows up and says, I am the king of your life, and he starts touching the thing that matters most to us, we're like Herod. We're like, well, we want to send you back to Bethlehem. And we want you to keep, we want to keep you in that manger. We don't want you anywhere near the center of power or the throne of our life. Now, just so we understand that Herod isn't just sort of going off on a paranoid rant, Matthew brings a detail into play. So there is this surprising location and this troubling revelation, but there is actually a biblical confirmation of everything that Herod suspects. And you could see it in Matthew chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. As soon as the Magi leave, and maybe they haven't even arrived yet to Herod's palace, but Herod has been made aware of what they're asking, he gathers the religious leaders and the biblical experts of the day together, the scribes and the chief priests. And he inquired of them, which means he asked hard questions, very exact questions, very deep questions. And what he wanted to know of them was this, where is the Christ? Where is the Messiah to be born? And they have an answer for him. And by the way, the answer is stellar. The answer is accurate. They say to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And they quote Micah chapter 5. Now, when they quote Micah chapter 5, I want you to notice two things. They make a change in the quotation. The original quotation in Micah refers to Bethlehem, and the idea is, Bethlehem, you are least among the rulers of Israel. You are least among the clans of Israel. In other words, Bethlehem, you're not very important. But when the scribes and the priests answer Herod, they actually say this, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, they're talking about Micah, And here's the quotation. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Something has happened that has changed the status of Bethlehem. Something amazing has happened. This little nothing town has all of a sudden become the most important place on the planet. No wonder the scribes and the Pharisees, even though they don't have a clue what they're doing, are recognizing that something is going on here. Bethlehem, by no means are you the least among the tribes of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And that last little bit, who will shepherd my people Israel, is a reference to kingship. And it comes right out of 2 Samuel 5, verse 2, where the nation of Israel looks at David and says, God has made you the king over us, and you will shepherd us. It's a stunning play on this prophecy. And so here are these men, the religious leaders, the biblical experts of the day, and they give Herod 
his answer, and it is a stunning answer. But there's something even more stunning than their answer. It's what they do next. They close up the scrolls. They thank Herod. Thank you very much. I hope our answer was satisfying. If you need more, we can elucidate more. If you need, you know, if you need us again, call us. And they go back to whatever it was they were doing. It's a stunning indifference and a stunning apathy to what is going on around them. I mean, these men had the answer. They had the chapter and the verse. They knew the scripture. They knew exactly what was going on. And when Herod asked, we want to know when the Messiah or where the Messiah is going to be born, they said, well, uh, we know exactly where to go. Uh, let me, uh, let, let, let's get somebody to get uh, the, the scroll of the prophets, uh, the minor prophets, by the way, and let's get Micah out, and here we go. And, and they had it all there. But the answer they gave Herod made no impact on them. You know, it's not like Jerusalem was three days away. It was an hour's journey if you were a good walker. It was six miles, five to six miles from where they were gathered. And I wonder sometimes how many of us, when we hear week after week, the glory of our Messiah, the beauty of our Messiah, the truth of the texts of Scripture, we, we memorize them, we sing them, we, we know them, we can quote them. From our youth, we have little ribbons that we won from Awana programs or truth trackers or whatever it is you were part of, and we absolutely close it all up and just go whatever way we were going and we do the thing we were doing, and there is no impact on our life. And so Matthew is forcing us now to come to grips with this, right? You see Herod, you see the leaders of the people, the religious leaders and the biblical experts. And before he gets us to the third response, there's a little segue in the drama. There is this surprising location. There is this troubling revelation. And there is this stunning biblical confirmation. But to get us to the main point, there's one little piece that's like a bridge and it, it involves a deceptive investigation. And you can see that in verses 7 through 8. Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. Gentlemen, welcome to Jerusalem. I, I hope it's been a, a good trip. I, I hope you have good lodgings. Uh, I, I hope you've been taken uh, well care of while you're here. And uh, I can tell uh, by your garments uh, that you're men of stature and uh, men of importance. And, uh, and uh, you know, there's a lot of you here, and, and so I'm, I'm glad you're here. And I, I wanted this meeting, and, and by the way, it'd be nice if it could just be between us for now. I wanted this meeting uh, because I, I, I need uh, some information for you, and I'll tell you why I need the information after I tell you what I need. I, I, I need to know when the star appeared... And they said, uh, well, you know, the star appeared uh, probably, uh, I don't know, 18 months uh, ago or so. Uh, we don't have really an exact time, but we know from later on in the rest of the story that Herod makes a brutal decision. And it, it happens in the very town 
that these magi are interested in. It happens to Bethlehem. And he is going to slaughter every male infant that is two and under. So something about the answer that the Magi gave, gave him that time frame. I want to know when this star appeared. Oh, thank you. Uh, That's helpful. Now, here's what else I I really would like you to do. I I want you to seek diligently. I want you to search exhaustively. I want you to inquire carefully. I want you to go and search diligently for the child. I want you to find him. And, and when you do, and you do your thing, uh, I want you to send word back to me. I want you to come back and tell me where he is, and here's the reason for all of this activity. I, too, want to come and worship him. Now, you and I know this is not the case. But if you were the Magi, or you were just a, a reader, you might question, what has happened to Herod? Maybe something in that text that the scribes and the Pharisees read to him actually gripped him. Surely Herod wouldn't be going against the Messiah, would he? And that little word secretly that Matthew puts in this account is there like a red light to tell you that something terrible is happening. There is a real motive that is being hidden here. So, we have seen the anger and the antagonism and the hostility of Herod because this Messiah is going to touch his throne. We've seen the indifference and the apathy of the scribes and the priests. And the last thing Matthew does is he shows us a third response, and it's the response that Matthew's been building to in this act in his pageant, and it's It's this part of the story that Matthew wants you to observe and he wants us to imitate in our own hearts. And it's this. It's a scandalous adoration. And I want you to pay very close attention to the word scandalous. It is a scandalous adoration. It starts very simply after listening to the king, they went their way, and behold, pay attention, Matthew says, look, The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Apparently, the star had disappeared. This angelic or heavenly light, this supernatural light had disappeared, and all of a sudden it appears again, and it's moving. And it leads them to the exact place where Mary and the child are. Now, notice the emotion. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's like Matthew piles up words. They are super joyful. They are exceedingly excited about what's to come. And when they come to Bethlehem and they find the child, they fall down before him and give him homage as a great king and a great ruler. They literally fall down on their knees and put their heads to the ground in front of this infant. They pay him homage as a great ruler. Secondly, they ascribe worship to him, the kind of worship that only should be given to God. And by the way, Matthew's already told us in chapter 1 that this infant really is God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. 
And then the third thing they do after they fall down and they worship is they render stunning gifts of devotion and dedication worthy of his status as king of kings and lord of lords. They give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And there's a lot of applications that we could go there uh, related to his role as a king and a priest and and the coming uh, death on the cross that we could make about this. But here's what I really want you to see this morning, that this is not the first time these kinds of gifts have been given by people to a ruler of Israel. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 10, the queen of Sheba brought these kinds of gifts to the greatest and wisest king after David that ever sat on David's throne, and his name was Solomon. And it's like Matthew wants you to pick up something. These magi are worshiping somebody wiser and greater than Solomon. Psalm 72, verse 10 through 15, and Isaiah chapter 60 all talk about the kings of the nations coming and bringing gold and precious stones and spices to the Messiah when he is born. And Matthew is bringing all of that to bear when these magi come and they fall down and they worship and they give gifts. Now, you say, well, Pastor Sam, that's great. But that's not scandalous. What is so scandalous about this event that you would use that term to describe what they're doing. And, and what's scandalous is not that they're falling down in front of Jesus and worshiping Jesus and giving him gifts. The, the, the scandal is not in what they're doing. The scandal is in who is doing it. These men are not Jews. They are Gentiles. You say, well, duh, they're from Persian, from Babylon. That's no big deal. They're not just Gentiles. They're pagan, unclean magi. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, we meet magi elsewhere in the Scripture, and every other time we meet magi in the Scripture, they are opposed to God or to God's people, and they are opposed by God. For example, we meet magi who opposed Moses In Pharaoh's court, in Exodus chapter 7, verses 11 through 12, we meet a group of magi there. There are magicians, enchanters, and sorcerers, magi, who oppose Daniel in Nebuchadnezzar's court. We meet them in Daniel chapter 2. We see two of them in the New Testament, Simon Magus, who opposes Peter and John in Acts 8, and Elimus, the magician, who opposed Paul and Barnabas, In Acts 13, the term magi comes from this idea. These men were not just pagans. They were pagan sorcerers and enchanters and wizards and astrologers. And they were, in the text of the Old Testament, abhorrent to God. Deuteronomy 18 talks about these kinds of people, and God says they are abhorrent to me. And in Leviticus... Chapter 19, he tells God's people, have nothing to do with them. And here they are. These wizards, these sorcerers, these astrologers show up. And you look at 
the political leader of Israel, and he hates the idea of Messiah. You look at the priests and the biblical scholars of the day, and they have absolutely no interest in the coming of a Messiah. But here are these pagan wizards and sorcerers and enchanters and astrologers, and they have traveled a great distance to be here. And when they come, they fall and they worship a great king. This is not the first time something objectionable like this and scandalous like this has happened. As the nation of Israel came into the promised land, the very first convert to Judaism and to that nation was a pagan prostitute named Rahab. And in the New Testament, the very first converts and the very first people who fall down and worship and give gifts of devotion to Messiah are pagan sorcerers and wizards. They are great sinners who have come to a great Savior and find great grace. Stunning, isn't it? How do you end a sermon like this? Well, let me ask you this as we close. Three simple questions. Which of the three responses that Matthew presents is your own response to Jesus? Who in the story are you most like? You say, well, I'm definitely not Herod. Hang on a second. Are you? Are, are there parts of the throne of your life that you are bound and determined that, that you're going to do your way? Maybe you come to church every week and it's like, yeah, 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 whatever. And you just, you're unmoved by what you sing and by what you hear. Or maybe you're like the Magi and you've been overwhelmed at the identity of the person who has come to save you from your sins. Who are you like in the story? That's the first question. Second question is this. What tangible expression of our devotion and worship do we bring to the feet of Jesus? These magi came, they brought themselves, and then they opened up their treasure, and they gave costly gifts. You know, when we really get a grip on what Jesus did for us, it's not hard to give back to him. When we really get a grip on what he delivered us from and what he is delivering us from, when we really understand that and we're overwhelmed with it, it's not hard to give him out of our treasure. So what tangible expression of our devotion do we bring regularly and sacrificially to Jesus? And then the final thing is this. God is immensely interested in bringing pagan sinners like these magi to the feet of Jesus. He's going to move heaven and earth to get them there. And here's my question. Are you and I willing to do the same thing to bring sinners to the cross of Christ to experience the power of the gospel. Are we willing to do that? These stories that Matthew gives us aren't just stories for a Christmas play. They actually happened, and it changed the world. And if you let it, it'll change you. Because like the Magi, 
who were the first Gentile sinners in the Gospel of Matthew, 30 years later, this same Jesus stands on a mountain and he appoints his apostles and he authorizes them to go into the rest of the world, to all the nations, to find more Gentiles and bring them to the cross of Jesus so they can find the same grace that the Magi experienced at the very beginning of the story. And God is still at work. The story isn't done. There are more people that need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know some of them. Some of them work next to you. Some of them live on the block you live on. Some of them you encounter when you go out to eat. Some of them you buy things from. Some of them come to repair things in your house. You have people in your life that come in and out of your life that God is trying to reach just like he wanted to reach those magi and just like he wanted to reach those priests and, uh, and those scribes and just like he wanted to reach Herod. And not all of them are going to respond. But God wants us to do the reaching. And so as we go into 2024, let's come once again to this beautiful story and let the story change us. Lord, thank you for what we have seen and what we have heard and what we've experienced out of this text. Thank you that you did not come to condemn the world, but that through you the world might be saved. And like these magi, we find ourselves great sinners in need of a great Savior. And we have experienced from your hand great grace, for which we give you thanks in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with Palmetto Baptist Church. We trust that the message was a blessing and hope that you will come and join us next Sunday at 9.30 a.m. at 100 Powers Boulevard, Piedmont, South Carolina.